I feel like I need to go buy myself a 3D printer now. I also recommend that. Give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're surprisingly consumer-friendly as far as the price and the setup is concerned. You'll need space, I suppose, is the biggest thing, and patience. Just put it right in the middle of my lounge. It'll be the centerpiece. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll just continuously churn out gophers. <laughs> That's the ideal setup. That's how it works in my house. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Leno. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at leno.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics light extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. Create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from GopherCon 2021. Don't forget to follow Go Time FM on Twitter for the unpop polls, links, and repos from the Go community, and a whole lot more. Okay, this is our last episode recorded live at GopherCon. Here we go. everyone another year of GopherCon. it's so exciting to see everybody online again i hope you had a wonderful first day and i hope you had lots of fun in the workshops yesterday for whoever attended my co-host for today is angelica hi hello joining from the overseas of new york <laughs> yeah but soon to be flying to london next week oh exciting finally exciting time to fly yeah and we are joined by three Wonderful gophers who have amazing side projects that are written in Go. And we have Sebastian Spank, who is a software engineer at InflexDB. And also, you know what, we'll tell about your wonderful projects right after the intro. We'll keep it interesting. For those who have not attended the talk or your talk has not been aired just yet, because there's a few more days of GopherCon ahead of us. Sebastian, where are you joining us from? I'm in the Microsoft studios here, so I'll be doing my talk here tomorrow. Oh, wow. Because everyone knows where the Microsoft studios are. 
and said Redmond, Washington. It's in the internet. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Helpful. <laughs> Washington, cool. Daniela Petritalik, you are joining us from my side of the overseas, from Europe, but not from the EU. Yes, uh, I'm currently based in the UK. I'm based in Bournemouth. It is the south coast of England, basically. But yes, <laughs> Europe. Team Europe, yay. Yay. And you're a product owner at JPMC and you're a Google developer expert for Go. Yes, yes, yes. As people say. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Linus Lee joining us. Uh, Linus, you're an independent software engineer and you're working on creative tools. Welcome. Yes, I am. Thank you. I'm also in the Microsoft Studio. I'm across the hallway from Sebastian, but it doesn't look like it through the magic of, of studios. Yeah, it looks completely different in your backgrounds, but the sound quality is amazing. Well, it's great of you all to join. Uh, we're here to talk about your fun projects. Let's do it. Right, Angelica? We are, we are. But before we dive into your kind of fun projects, we want to hear a little bit about kind of when and why you started using Go. Where did it all start for you? Maybe uh, Daniela, you could dive in? Sure, sure. How did Go come into your world? It's a fun thing that I usually like to tell the story that as I came for the community and stayed uh, for the community because I started with Go, it was a few years ago. when We see what you did there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Nice catch. <laughs> a few years ago. Anyway, it was uh, basically in, in, back in the days I used to work a, a company in Brazil and they were heavy users of Go. I was getting engaged with the community like in other languages like PyLadies and other groups. And they actually, they asked me to help organizing a, a women's group and to basically a women who go chapter. And I didn't know what Go was about. <laughs> to be honest, I was just helping to organize the community. And then uh, I got the opportunity to go to GopherCon Denver and then the magic happened. And I was simply in love with the language. Everything I, I did after that, I was trying to use Go in some way or another. So attending the same GopherCon that you're attending now, this is all how it started. Well, yes, definitely. So it's, it's a very emotional thing to be back here and contributing to this community, this amazing community. So yeah, it has a special place in my heart. Well, for all of us. How about you, Linus? How did Go come into your life? Yeah, so I, I actually started out in the web world. I learned to program doing JavaScript and HTML web stuff. And then Go was sort of my way to figure out how to do lower level, I guess, backend programming. I had like dabbled with things like Python and Ruby before, but I wanted something where I could have, I could have a little bit of a low level of control over like what my data structures look like and and things like that without having to learn. I guess the only option back then, the only viable option was like C and C plus which is great languages on their own, but more complex than I was. I could fit into my brain at the time, and Go was sort of this like nice middle ground where I, there was things like Good Garbage Collector, and it was dynamic enough where I could wrap my head around it, but still let me write programs that I wanted to that were fast enough and small enough and things like that, and so. That's the way that I got into it, and I've since stuck with it for all the good things that it offers. Awesome. How about you? Sebastian, how'd you uh, come to us? Yeah, well, it was love at first sight. I mean, the moment I saw that gopher mascot, I was like, let's do it. Like, this is it. <laughs> this is the language for me. <laughs> me too. I had no idea what it was, and I was like, I just, right. that gopher. <laughs> right. That was all that's all I needed to convince me. I mean, before I was working with Python and C++, and it's kind of the same thing where it's just like I felt a bit much doing the C++ and C stuff, and then Python was good, but it felt a bit messy, and I really liked Go's opinionated way of doing things. And, yeah, so then I started using it. I've been working on it professionally now, but uh, before it was just project stuff. And no one really wants a Python plushie. 
Gopher is so much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, right. Before I came to the conference, one of my, I was talking to one of my coworkers, and he asked me, you're going to this GopherCon thing. What is a GopherCon about? And I was like, oh, you know, it's for all the people who love gophers. And we talk, just talk about gophers for four days. <laughs> Not showing off or anything, but here's the one from Singapore. I was going to ask. That was what I was gonna, just about to ask. I was going to be like, I've not seen that purple one and I want it. It has a tail from the famous um, fountain in Singapore. Mm. No, it's gorgeous. Okay, awesome. So we've heard about your start. Yeah. Are you all still working in Go now? And how long actually have you been doing this? I can take a stab at it. So I've, I've been using Go in one form or another for at least like two to three years, I think. That's when my, I, I wrote my first kind of Go projects. I've written Go professionally a little bit, like I've squeezed it into some projects here and there that aren't like what you'd call like production products, but that are like sort of infrastructure, like testing services or things like that, just because it's like a nice thing that you can build and it doesn't, one of the nice things about Go is that we value uh, stability a lot. And so if you write a thing and it doesn't go, you know, maintain daily for a few months, it doesn't break over time. <laughs> but most of my usage of Go has been on side projects on things like the thing that I'm going to talk about today, but also other things like little chat clients that I've written and kinds of learning, learning exercises. Yeah, I, I can go next. I think, unfortunately, I feel like I almost like uh, I'm trying to think of the best word, way to say this, but I, ba I barely wrote any kind of Go code in production. I spent about, I don't know, one year back when I was working at GoCardless, but that's about it. And most of my career in codes in terms of Go development is basically side projects and things I like to do and tutorials and things as you, as you know a little bit about. But yeah, haven't been doing a lot of Go, unfortunately. I was trying to find my way into <laughs> working with Go, but for some reason didn't happen. That's super interesting. That is unexpected, but that's cool. Sebastian, how about you? Yeah, I guess I've had the good fortune of being able to work with Go now professionally for the past year in Flux State, working on the Telegraph project. It's been fantastic because before that, it was also just kind of dabbling with it and just whenever I could for projects. Technically, for half a year, I professionally, of air quotes, worked with Go, but just because I was just doing it on a project that nobody else wanted to work on, but who knows what <laughs> that ended up with. But now, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing it professionally with Telegraph, and it's been fantastic. Open source project, written Go. It's uh, everything I could dream of as far as a career. What's up, Gophers? Have you heard of the DevOps platform that's helping teams and orgs work more efficiently, deliver better software faster, and reduce risk and cost? What if I told you there's a free tier for that platform as well? Yes, I'm talking about GitLab, the DevOps platform that empowers organizations to maximize the overall return on software development by delivering software faster, more efficiently, while strengthening security and compliance. GitLab helps teams identify and address blockers immediately in a single tool, focus on delivering value, not maintaining integrations, and automate security and compliance without compromising speed or spend. You can get started with their free tier with no credit card required, improve yourself and your team that the platform has everything you need. Head to about.gitlab.com slash solutions slash DevOps dash platform or check the show notes for a link to get started. Again, links are in the show notes.
Speaking of career, Sebastian, would you like to tell us about your Ooh. fun project in Go? Oh, <laughs> hey, awesome. Did you 3D print that? For everybody who is uh, listening but not watching, I have a little 3D printed gopher that I received uh, from a colleague in previous company. And he 3D printed it. His, um, I don't think he planned to print gophers. I don't think his team works in Go. But he is a fan of the mascot. So that was like a nice gift. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I should have brought some myself <laughs> that I 3D printed. But unfortunately, I got nothing to show off here. I guess I have to wait for my talk tomorrow. Got some screenshots of them. So during my during quarantine, one of the craft projects I started was 3D printing. And the first thing I did was I created a thermal detonator prop from Star Wars and then used TinyGo <laughs> to make like the LED light shine and play some audio. Mm. So that was pretty fun. And then I just kind of started looking at other ways I could involve Go with 3D printing. And it was, uh, yeah. So they've got like this whole thing called Octoprint that helps monitor and re remotely control your 3D printer. And I was kind of looking at ways to, to extend that using Go. But yeah, it's been fun. It's kind of like, you know, for 3D print, it's not like I'm writing the firmware for the 3D printer or anything. As far as Go is concerned, it's kind of like building up around it. And also 3D modeling Go first to 3D print as well. So <laughs> that's the main thing I was doing there. Yeah, that's not an obvious choice to choose Go for 3D printing for the modeling. Yeah, which is actually pretty cool. I wasn't aware that you could do it either because I was mainly using like Blender and open source product common open source projects for 3D modeling that use user interfaces. But there is a package out there that you can create 3D models using Go. And yeah, it was pretty cool. It's just like primitive shapes kind of glued together. So we'll show a screenshot of that tomorrow. But it's, yeah, it's going to end up with a very round looking gopher because it's just a sphere <laughs> of other uh, primitive objects glued on it. But yeah, it's all written in Go. So gopher written in Go is possible. And the open source package I use is called forgot the user's name, but it's like SDFX, I believe. So if you look that up, yeah, model your own gopher with it. And you're talking about spheres and just building shapes out of spheres. It reminds me of when I built, where I was looking at building ray tracers. And sphere is just the simplest shape to write a ray tracer for. And so you start just building scenes out of only spheres and everything. Like your ground is just a gigantic sphere with an infinite radius. And you're building like raindrops on a giant sphere. What does it actually look like to build a model with Go? Are you like outputting it to a file or are you talking to an API for the printer? Yeah, so what you output is an STL file and it's like the standard format file what you kind of do in 3D printing. It's a file format that describes the geometry like a bunch of triangles. It's like magic, but it's, they use like science, something called sign distance functions to find the primitive shapes in the code and then output mm. that to the STL file, which you can then slice into g-code for the 3d printer to print out yeah so how many times did you have to reprogram it before you actually got a beautiful gopher because <laughs> i would assume you had a few interesting looking shapes <laughs> that may have resembled a gopher but may not have been a gopher yeah. making its eyes and its pupils look <laughs> like an actual <laughs> gopher shape that's tricky but i think i got something that looks like a gopher you got your iconic mouth and teeth and then you're like bam it's a gopher you're done it's a sphere with eyes and a square <laughs> but that's all you need the beauty of the gopher transcends all shapes i must say i really admire anyone that can do 3d modeling this is <laughs> such a thing that my brain can't process that's why when i i go to my hobbies i only do 2d things because my brain just can't process the third dimension. I really admire that. Looking forward to seeing your, your talk, how it works. Yeah, I did cheat and use Blender to uh, 
make it sexier looking than the spheres. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, definitely my first thing I've ever 3D modeled before. Usually I'm also just working on the 2D space. It's definitely more comfortable. <laughs> and did you use Go because it was the best language to do this? Or because you write Go anyway? Or did you think about using other languages, try it out before settling on Go? That's a good question. No, I chose it because I wanted to write in the language. Because I mean, technically, Python is what Octoprint, the software I mentioned, written in. And it's kind of like, that's mm-hmm. the ecosystem. And I, there's a lot of good community work around it. But I was like, no, I'm going to go against the stream, doing Go, <laughs> regardless if, I'm, if it's the best choice or not. I'll find out at the end. I mean, it's pretty nice to work with, the, you know, just all the benefits of using Go binary that you can uh, send around easily and don't have to worry about Python versions and setting virtual environments. Interesting. You can cross-compile to all the different 3D printers. Right. <laughs> Is there anything that using Go allows you to do that you would be able to do with a Blender? I guess you could sort of programmatically generate a bunch. Like if you wanted a grid of spheres or something, you could programmatically generate it. But yeah, what, what have you experimented with that, that would be hard to do in Blender or another piece of software? I am a pretty much a novice with as far as 3D modeling is concerned. So the reason why I used Blender to like finalize the gopher, because I couldn't really figure out how to make like a nice like hourglass shape for the gopher, you know, like that perfect body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it wasn't just two spheres attached to each other. But I guess, I mean, I guess the benefit of using Go for it is the fact that it, you can now just send that piece of program to somebody and they can adjust it and easily shareable. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, you could send your Blender files, share those as well, but... I felt like the learning curve was also a little bit easier. The fact that it is just Go and just defining shapes while using the user interface for Blender is tricky. There's definitely a steep learning curve there. Have you used it before? Have you done 3D modeling? I have personally not. I've I've looked at it. I had some friends. My, my roommate in college was uh, like a mechanical engineering major, and he he dabbled in it. He would make some stuff for me occasionally. And I always thought it was cool. But again, because of that like learning curve where you look at someone's computer when they're doing it and you're like, I'll never be that looks like a professional power tool kind of interface and that scares you off a little bit. But if it's just a Go program, maybe I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. I feel like I need to go buy myself a 3D printer now. I also recommend that. Give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're surprisingly consumer friendly as far as the price and the setup is concerned. You'll need space, I suppose, is the biggest thing, and patience. Just put it right in the middle of my lounge or be the centerpiece, (laughs) and it'll just continuously churn out gophers. (laughs) That's the ideal setup. That's how it works in my house. Yeah. (laughs) One thing that you alluded to earlier from another question was like the debug cycle, which I imagine is a little slower than just running the code. Like, I guess you can run it and then look at the model inside Blender or something like that. But do you ever have like a hardware debug cycle where you print it and you're like, oh, this is oh yeah, this looks bad, and then you have to rewrite the program? Kind of missed that question. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if there's a better way of doing it than just building it and running it and being like, well, that's it's <laughs> a couple of millimeters to the left, <laughs> like scoot it over. Like I'm a big advantage of using Blender for user interface. You can just scoot it over right. and you can see where it's supposed to land. But you know, in the world space, I was definitely just guessing the coordinates. I was definitely going to mention that in my talk where it's like these numbers are made up. <laughs> like this was just me <laughs> hoping for the best. And, and they ended up in the right spot. Mm. So, yeah. Trial and error. Right. Yeah. I had an exp- interesting experience with that uh, when I was writing some games. I also do a lot of guessing in terms of positioning things. So, in the end, I ended up using uh, Steve Francia's, uh, I don't remember now if it's Viper or Cobra, the one that, uh, that that library that helps load configuration dynamically. So, it's basically. Every time I had something I need to set up a, a, a different thing in the screen, 
I used a dynamic configuration that I was reloading JSON files on the fly and you just could save it because the render was just updating the screen every single frame. I was just kind of automating my trial and error just with dynamic configuration. That might, I don't know <laughs> if you thought about something. I'm not sure how fast is rendering, but in my case, it was just one frame. So that was pretty fast. Yeah, it was pretty quick in the sense that there was like, I was using the slicer program to get it to the 3D printed format. And I just, you can reload it in there, but it felt pretty hacky, but <laughs> yeah, sorry. What were you going to say? I was going to say, let's hear more. Let's go from, from 3D to 2D. Yeah. Daniela, I would love to hear a little bit about, you talked about some of your in the weeds, how you got it working, how you tested it, but like, what is your project? And uh, how did it come to be? I would say, pre-Wackrisit, and I said this to the group before, I have a very, very special place in my heart for this project because when I was but a young gopher, <laughs> not even, when I was but a young newbie dweeb looking at the computer science world for a language that fit, I went to Gotham Go and saw you do your talk on this side project. And it got me so excited. I went home and spent the entire weekend building it and that was one of the main things. I was like, this is my language. This is so fun. I'm ready. Let me be a gopher. <laughs> I'm ready. I love this attitude. And I'm really happy that uh, it had this such an influence because getting from the start, uh, the beginning, since people don't know my project yet, uh, basically, I wrote this tutorial, which I call Pac-Man from scratch or Pac-Go for short, because not a man is a gopher, maybe. <laughs> and the idea is to rebuild the classical game of Pac-Man only using Go and the standard library, not in, no external like fancy packages. And in order to abstract the drawing function, because this is, tends to be the most complex thing in games, like how, how you render to screen. And I didn't want to expose people to this level of complexity. We ended up using like the terminal as your screen. And since Go supports Unicode, you can actually print emojis in the terminal. Mm -hmm. So the entire board of the game is rendered using emojis and using some clever tricks with NC escape sequences. You can put colors and draw walls and things like that. And there are some things that Go makes really easy to do, like especially, for instance, you want to separate your input handling from the main program. You can use a Go routine and channels. So. Things like this in other languages, I tried to do this before, like C++ and others, kind of you need to learn threads, you need to learn synchronization, all these more advanced concepts, but Go makes it really easy for a beginner to have like, oh yeah, maybe you don't even fully understand what a Go routine is or a channel is, but it's enough for you to get started and do something. And the whole idea of this project was to give the community something in terms of tutorial, like a starting point, a bit more interesting than building APIs, because I know <laughs> APIs, we ended up doing this for work, but why not having something more fun that has visual feedback, like so you can see things moving on the screen. I don't know, for me, it's magical, but maybe that's uh, because also the only reason why I'm in this industry now is because I love games and I always want to work with games. And that was kind of like my, oh yeah, I never, work with games before, but this is my opportunity. I'll make something with games and go. And yeah, that's how it started. <laughs> yeah. And I think the beauty of it is exactly what you just said. For people who are learning Go, whether from another language or completely as their first language, you go through that phase where you're like going through all the like Go tutorials and you're trying to do this little, little like app and you try and print Hello World. But then you hit this ceiling where you're like, I, what do I do now? I know the basics. 
I want to build something that feels like an accomplishment, that feels exciting, that feels like, oh, this is something I want to like show my friends, show my family, be like, look, I can code now. And this is fun. It's colorful. As you say, it gives you that visual feedback. And it gives you as a beginner, that feeling of accomplishment. And like, I did this, I made it through that tutorial and I accomplished this thing. And I think the beauty of how you framed it is that you've really paid attention to making sure it is truly step-by-step and it really does guide everyone through why you made a decision, how you did it. You provide the code so you can look through. I'm like waiting for your next game to come out. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, I've been a bit busy with life and things and (laughs) definitely there are more things uh, coming on on your way. Yeah, stay tuned. I did actually uh, talk at GopherCon UK about my next project, which is now it's a card game. I'm rebuilding an old 80s card game that I can't even say it was popular where I came from. It was just like the game we had when we were a child and we played that game. So I couldn't find an international version of it. So I only had like a, a scan of the, the cards that I used to reference the game, but basically I'm rebuilding it. But now I'm trying to be a bit more professional, if I can say that. <laughs> Definitely I can't say that. Nothing <laughs> close to being a professional, but I'm using uh, this library called Abitan, which is a proper game development library within Go by Hajime Hoshi. Uh, uh, this, this guy is amazing. Uh, really thanks for writing Abitan. And yeah, so this work in progress, it's not very pretty now, but I have a functioning uh, prototype and the code is open source, but I didn't advertise that much because the the game is ugly now. (laughs) It's not very beginner friendly. I was just kind of like a proof of concept, trying different things, learning everything as it goes. As it goes, I did that again. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard not to say it. It's very easy to fall into the pattern. So, I mean, as you've been iterating on this project, as you've been building, and as you've been delving more into like the world of kind of games and programming for games, is Go a good language for these kind of projects? Or was it that you already liked Go and it, it was fun? Or in fact, is Go interesting, good to play with, but there are other languages that may serve a gaming function better? I think Go is a very good language with some asterisks, like some side notes, maybe. Because the traditional language for writing games, like uh, from if you are old school like me, is like C++ and C and things like that. I tend to see Go as an improved version of those languages because it abstracts so much. You don't need to worry about so much about memory management. You still need to worry a little bit about memory, but not as much as you had to do in the past with these other types of languages. Of course, they also evolved, but I really like how Go is pretty straightforward, has a simple syntax, a cons- very consistent across all different features of the language. So it gives almost that feeling of a scripting language, like it's very simple to do simple things. And this is, I think that's the beauty of it. So it also becomes very productive. The problems come because Go is traditionally a systems language. It's not very popular in the gaming industry. You don't have a lot of library support and things like that. You have the basics you have, like you have SDL bindings, you have AB10 and a few other gaming libraries, but it's not widespread. So you don't have a large community that can help you support it. But essentially everything that you need to build a game, you have there. So I think that's kind of like, I love the language. And I think that's almost like um, Sebastian uh, said as well, but maybe Go was not the best option, but that was the language I want to work with. So that's kind of why I decided. But I think overall, I think that 
you can do good games with Go. And even Ebiten, they are just recently publishing their first game in, uh, on Nintendo Switch. So you can see, you can be used for like real games, like real commercial games. Hey there, it's Jared again. Have you heard about Changelog++? It's our membership program. You can join to directly support our work on GoTime. As a thanks for your support, we hook you up with an ad-free feed, discounts on merch, plus some bonuses like extended episodes. Sign up today at changelog.com slash plus plus. I'm super curious as somebody who knows nothing about game development. When you say gaming libraries, what kind of tools do they give you? What do you need in a gaming library? A lot of things, actually, but I'd say the most basic ones are how do you handle inputs? When you're writing a game, you don't really want to care if the player has a keyboard, a, a gamepad, mm. or anything else. You don't want to worry about specific drivers for different types of inputs. You want the game library to give you this for free. And you just know, want to know, key was pressed, and you'll do your mappings into the thing. And the second thing is drawing to the screen. Another good example, you don't really care about the low level part of drawing to the screen. You just want to say, put my pixel there, and that's it. So like relative 10% down from the beginning of the screen, kind of. Yeah, and, that it, it, and I'm talking only about 2D, and 3D gets way more complex, but like scaling operations, rotation, mm -hmm. all the kind of transformations you can do in an image. And also sound is a huge thing. Like I don't want to write like a, a music player. I should get this for free from my gaming library, things like that. So maybe sometimes you you have some kind of artificial intelligence processor that you can just write an AI as in a script and the, the engine will load that script as and control your enemies and things like that. So this is kind of support so you can Focus really on the content creation because what makes or breaks your game is really not the, necessarily the code, is the art, is the sounds, is your assets. I like, I like to say it's, it's all about your assets. That resonates with me a lot, actually. I've tried to, I'm not a big gamer, but occasionally I've come across little like Steam games that I thought were really beautiful and well done. And at times I, I've had the thought of, oh, maybe I should get into try to build a game of my own. And the thing that I always bump against is I can write the logic. I can probably learn to use one of the game engines and try to make something that's interactive and do the things that I, I, I want to do. But the things that make a video game really compelling is all the art and all the sounds and the design. And like that requires like, making 3D models, which, as we discussed, is difficult, and doing art and, and having even just building a storyline behind it and all the character design and things like that. And that's a whole other art yeah. that's outside of software. There is a huge like iceberg of game development that's uh, about the presentation is just like a thin layer, but you have assets like in terms of art, sound effects, and music. It also either kills your game or makes the best, you uh, give a, like a, amazing results. But also the whole part about game design, of how your, your game mechanics work, like what are the winning scenarios, what, uh, what are your objectives, how can you make that thing rewarding for the player so they will be engaged and really enjoy playing your game? How can you balance your game? Like this is a decent amount of challenge plus reward. So these are the 
hard parts. And also my brain is kind of, I'm really bad at this and I'm trying to get better, but also partnering with the right people can definitely help a lot. I have a great idea for your game, Daniela, to make it really rewarding. You can use Sebastian's work and 3D print the cards. <laughs> mm. I think that's a great, uh, great idea. <laughs> you know, you always feel paper cards in the hand, and once you'll feel like more chunkier, like reminding like a phone, it will be very interesting. You know, you have to pay more attention when you do that. Revolutionary. <laughs> Talking about something that's very challenging, engaging, and rewarding, Linus. Yes. Let's hear a little bit about your awesome project. Yeah, so my project is called Oak. It's a toy programming language. So what that means. It's a programming language that you can use to write things like web servers and, and little apps and command line interfaces and things like that. But it's a toy language, so it's not something that you're going to use at work or to, to build a production service for lots of reasons. But it's dynamically typed scripting language. It looks a little bit like JavaScript. It works a little bit like Lua if you've used it. But it's a Go program. So it's a language that's written in Go. And what that means is that when you run the Oak CLI to start up a REPL or to run a file, that thing that is running the file is a Go program, but the program source code that it's running is written in a language that I made up called Oak, if that makes any sense. It's a little bit sort of recursive, but yeah. And so part of it was designing the actual syntax and semantics of what the language is going to be able to do, how it works, what are the types, what are the values, what are the things you can do, how do you define functions and things like that. And the other part is actually implementing, in Oak's case, the interpreter that actually takes the syntax, the program you've written, and does the thing that the program's supposed to do. And also, incidentally, other things like telling you errors and, and concurrency and lots of other things that you might encounter as an interpreter. How did you come up with the idea to do this in Go? Like, Did you say, I want to learn Go, and I want to learn Go by creating a new language? It was a mix, actually. So before Oak, there was Ink, which is the, the <laughs> conceptual predecessor to Oak. They're very similar languages, but Ink was the first Language, the toy language that I made. I made it after having gone through like a tutorial, like how to make a basic Lisp interpreter. And I wanted to make something that was a little more usable and looked, frankly, like had the syntax that I wanted. Because everyone always, when they first learn program, they're like, oh, I wish. <laughs> I really like this language, but I wish this keyword said something different or like the symbol was a different symbol. And it was my chance to like play God with my own language. At that point, I, had, I was mostly proficient with only like the really dynamic languages like JavaScript and Python. So I needed to learn a, a compiled language that was a lower level to be able to build an interpreter that was actually usable. And um, Go is not the typical language that you would use for such a task. You usually use like C++ or more increasingly common is like Rust or, or other languages like that. But as I noted before, it was harder for me to wrap my head around those at the time than it was for me to, to learn Go. And Go is uh, low level enough for me to be able to build an interpreter. And so Ink was my first Go like learning Go project, and simultaneously was also trying to learn how to build a programming language. That's super cool. Has anybody made anything real cool out of your programming language, Inc.? <laughs> I have. <laughs> and then other people have used some of the stuff that I've built. Actually, one thing that's relevant for the Go community is uh, if you guys are familiar with the Go by Example website, mm -hmm. where it, it sort of walks you through Go and gives you kind of different examples of how different parts of Go works. A guy uh, named Andrew, uh, man... His name is escaping me now, but Andrew something. We've talked on the phone before, but he made a, an ink by example site. 
And just as Go by example is written in Go, and Go compiles the website, Ink by example is written in Ink, <laughs> so it compiles itself. And Ink has its own syntax highlighter and, and sort of code formatter and things like that. And so the website looks a lot like Go by example. It's inspired by Go by example, but it's a website for Ink that someone else made that isn't me, which was super cool to see that there was like another user for the language. And then on top of Ink, I've made a bunch of my own personal apps like Twitter clients and Notes apps and things like that that I use day to day. That's super cool. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Lua in your uh, opening statement. I, I was just wondering because Lua is very common to in the game development community write for AI script. Right. Would you see your language uh, uh, could be used for the same type of use, like writing scripts for AIs or things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the domain of toy languages is actually for embedding in other programs. And Lua is a great example of that. I think there are some specific things about Lua that make it really great for embedding in a game specifically. The things that come to mind are Lua is a really small language. It's written in C. It's pretty readable. And so you can... It's fairly easy to embed in terms of just like the technical work involved to embed it into another program. The other thing that makes Lua unique is that it has features of the language and of the interpreter that make it easy for you to fit it into another larger program. So Lua has, I forget what it's called, but it has like a type that is supposed to be like an opaque type that just wraps something else from the hosted, from the host program. So if you have a game and you have like a like a C struct that represents a character or an object or something, you can just wrap that and expose it to Lua with some APIs. It's also fairly easy to define foreign function interfaces for Lua code to be able to call C functions. And I think that's what makes Lua really great for game development. Oak, in theory, has those things, minus the CFFI. But because it's embedded inside Go, anything that includes Oak has to also include the Go runtime, which makes it a little heavier and is more opinionated. How can the community contribute to these languages to ink into oak. You're looking for yeah. documentation, code contributions. Yes, for sure. So one of the reasons I made oak was that I, I made ink and then I used it for a couple of years to build stuff. And it was usable because I, I made stuff with it. By definition, it was usable, but it was not very good. The language is kind of tough to use. The interpreter sucks a little bit because of the particular ways. When you learn to build an interpreter in school or in a course, there are specific things that, that you spend a lot of time on, like parsing and compiling. And there's things that you don't spend as much time on that are actually, it turns out, are really important and hard to get right. And one of those things is like error handling. If you're trying to get other people to use your language, most of the time they're going to be spending initially is going to be writing incorrect programs and getting errors. To do error reporting correctly, you have to gather a lot of information about the runtime of a program, like where it's happening, what's causing it, and be able to give users really helpful errors. And none of the tutorials cover that properly. Mistakes like that I accumulated over time, and eventually when I wrote Oak, I fixed a lot of those. So Ink isn't as usable as Oak, and if you want to check things out, I check out Oak. I'm still sort of tinkering away at it as a solo project, but if you want to try it, you're welcome to try it. And then if you have any like problems you find with it or, or bugs, filing those would be super helpful. If you have opinions on how Oak should work differently, I have my own opinions, and the point of Oak is to manifest them. But if you have your own opinions, it's a Go project. It's not that complicated. You can probably read through it and come to my talk to figure out how it works. And it's only a few thousand lines. And so you could fork it, make it into your own, change all the keywords and all the syntax, and make your own language out of it too. That's awesome. Tempting. How about Daniela? If people want to help, want to get involved, want to live their best pack Go life, how do they do that? So I have the, the GitHub repo for PackGo, like it's github.com, my user, dennycat slash PackGo. We already had a lot, actually a lot of contribution from the community. I think I, I built until step eight, and uh, I think that we now we have step 10 or 11 or something like that. So people definitely were inspired and started creating new content for it. 
it's a bit abandoned now uh, uh, from my perspective. Uh, I wish I could have supported it better. So things like Go modules, testing, are some topics that we're not covering in the, in the traditional uh, workshop that I think if people are willing to contribute, that would be amazing. Like a chapter on Go modules, a chapter um, on testing, things like that. That would be great. Sebastian. How do we contribute? How do we help? How do we get involved? Yeah, I guess I'm mostly thinking of using Oak to write a Pac-Man game now. So, <laughs> but yeah, I guess I've got my Gopher model uploaded. So you're welcome to download and 3D print that. So that helps me of just seeing more Gophers out in the world. But then part of the thing I worked on was a plugin for the Telegraph project that I'm working on now as a full-time maintainer uh, to interact with Octoprint. And that's just an open source repository. You're welcome to whatever you want with that's written in Go, but maybe extend it, add more features to it. Awesome. Cool. Well, that's inspiring and also gives us all ideas on what can we do in our free time. Okay. Time for unpopular opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. Okay, so you know the rules. You have the stage to tell us what is your unpopular opinion. It does not have to be about your project, about tech, about anything at all. It can be about anything. And we will then go and ask on Twitter to see if your unpopular opinion is really unpopular or yes, popular. Linus, would you like to start? Sure, I'll take it. My unpopular opinion is that it's actually probably a more popular opinion, but it's, it's phrased, the way that I'm phrasing it, I think is important, which is that I think it's an accident of history that we don't expect every computer user to be able to program. I've been watching a lot of, this is going to reveal my age now, but I, I've been watching what I consider to be older TV programming, programming about computers, computer programs that were coming out in the like mid, late 80s and early 90s. And it's kind of astonishing how all those programs sort of expect the user to buy the program and then use macros or scripts to program it to fit their use case. Things like databases or word processors, or there's tons and tons of support for just, you buy the thing, and then to make it useful, you program it. And to a certain extent, all these consumers of software are expected to program a little bit and know how computers work and customize it. And it's a little sad, I think, that we don't, we don't expect that of users anymore, and we expect them to just take the product and, and use it. And I, wish, I wish there was more software that expected and taught people to think in terms of programming and try to customize their software to work the way that they want it to. Okay, Sebastian. Yeah, I guess my unpopular opinion is I think that if your open source project has a hand-drawn logo on it, then it's a good open source project and it can be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> so just you can judge it by the cover. Cool. Hey, Daniela. Okay, I think my unpopular opinion will make me the most unpopular person in GopherCon this year. Sorry, guys, but I don't think Go really needs generics. What a mic drop to the end of the show. Thank you, Daniela. We knew you'd say that, maybe. That's why we asked you to go last. Yeah, but that's a brave choice. To wrap this up, thank everyone for your interesting insights and sharing about your fun projects and for talking about that at GopherCon. And thanks, everybody who tuned in. Enjoy the talks and see you around the Discord. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thank you to our awesome host, Natalie. Awesome as always. All right, that is our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Are you using Go for any cool, non-work-related stuff? Let us know in the comments. Yes, you can discuss each and every episode of GoTime on changelog.com. 
Simply open your show notes, click the Discuss on Changelog News link, and let your voice be heard. And if this is your first time with us, don't forget to subscribe at gotime.fm or in your favorite podcast app. We're in there. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by our beat freak in residence, Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. Next week, Natalie returns and she's bringing Alexei Palachenko with her to discuss AI-driven development in Go. That's right, they're talking GitHub Copilot, OpenAI Codecs, and more. Stay tuned for that. It's coming up next time on GoTime.